Thank you, Katie and Kay listeners, for joining me on the Meet in the Middle show, where we share dialogue on complex issues with local thought leaders with differing opinions. My hope is for listeners to gain new perspective and empower freedom of expression. I'm Dan Richardson, and today's topic is immigration policy versus reality. Where does the rubber meet the road? My guest today is Alex Sanchez, who's the founder and now serves as the president and CEO of Voces Unidas the first multi-entity, Latino-created, and Latino-led nonprofit organization in the Central Mountain region. He leads Voces Unidas uh, de las Montanas, Montañas, a 501c3 charitable organization, and Voces Unidas Action Fund, a 501c4 social welfare, welfare organization. An experienced executive and community organizer, Alex has led other nonprofits, managed his own political consulting firm, and has extensive corporate and government experience as the senior management level. Alex is also the summer son of Mexican immigrants, but Alex, if you would so indulge us, do you mind telling us, um, well, first, welcome, and you mind sharing your story of, uh, in your own personal story of immigration? Uh, sure. You know, like uh, many, like thousands of uh, Latino and Latina families in the Roaring Fork Valley, you know, my family came to... Um, to our community, uh, my dad actually was the first one to, to come to the Roanford Valley in the early 80s. Uh, and like most immigrants, uh, there was a friend of his that first got to um, Aspen and learned about jobs being available and how all these resort communities and hotels and restaurants uh, were needing workers. And so they sent word, um, even in the early 80s. And my dad was in California at the time, uh, working. Uh, by then, he had left the fields. He did work in the fields of California, picking fruit, and had then moved into LA uh, to work in manufacturing. And he again heard about the opportunities in the Roaring Fork Valley, and he made his way from California to the Roaring Fork Valley. Uh, we are originally from Mexico. My dad um, was born in Michoacan, but raised um, or later moved to Jalisco. Um, and my family um, are from a small uh, rural farming and ranching community, a population of about 500 people wow. uh, in Jalisco. And so when he left as a young man uh, to follow the American dream, like you know millions of pe- uh, people um, have, uh, he eventually made it to California and eventually made it to, uh, to the Aspen area in the early 80s. I myself came to the Roaring Fork Valley when I was nine years old. Uh, I, you know, I am an, you know, I was an English language learner. Um, I came with my mom and, um, my two other, uh, siblings and we, uh, came, I started, uh, fifth grade, I believe. Uh, yeah, fifth grade in Basalt, um, elementary school, uh, when I was, uh, nine years old. So, um, you know, and we've been here ever since. Uh, obviously I have, I have left uh, the Valley, um, to be able to go to college. I'm the first in my family to have the opportunity to go to college and um, have lived in many other communities, uh, both in the United States and abroad, and um, have, as of you know, 2019, returned back to the Roaring Fork Valley, and now I lead. I have the privilege to be able to lead uh, one of the organizations I helped uh, um, create. 
what what about your experience and what you know of your parents' experience? Um, what do you think is is the most commonly misunderstood aspect of your family's migration to the United States? Yeah, it's a uh, great question. I mean, there's you know lots of Latino families uh, here in the valley um, that I think we've always had migration. Um, in and out of the Royal Valley, more in than out. Uh, and, you know, we certainly have seen various waves, even including, even before Latinos uh, were coming in, lots of people started to um, want to come and be in this great valley. And because of all the beautiful nature and um, the, the ski culture or jobs. Uh, but I think for our, for our family and many other families who share our lived experiences, you know, we, we came... Uh, whether it's from Mexico or El Salvador, those are the two largest uh, communities in the Loring Fork Valley. Mexicans probably still represent roughly about 60, if not 70 percent of the entire Latino community. The second largest is El Salvador, with probably anywhere from 15 to 30 percent of the population. And then you have other communities uh, that represent smaller numbers, um, but yet and they continue to grow and diversify. But those sort of communities or those families from Mexico or El Salvador, you know, we, some of us share a very similar journey. We came here because we lacked opportunities where we were from or we were farmers in some of the trade policies and some of the, uh, some of the growth and corn production in this country uh, uh, influenced, obviously, what happens in other, in other countries like Mexico where actually corn um, you know, corn or, 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 or maize is native to Mexico and, and South and Central America, um, yet some of these countries can no longer compete uh, in the market. Um, and so those farmers that used to uh, farm corn could no longer compete with the production and the subsidies in the United States. Therefore, those farmers uh, couldn't make a living. And so we are a great example of that. My dad and my grandfather were farmers. Uh, corn was the main uh, crop and uh, eventually in small communities with no infrastructure, no opportunities for anything. You like every other family, when you're faced with 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 that reality, uh, you move to make sure that you can provide for your family. And that's how we made our way uh, north. Other families have had similar journeys, and others have had to escape, you know, civil war um, uh, on top of the economic uh, realities that some of these countries face. But we came to this community. Uh, and, you know, it was, I remember, you know, being nine years old and we had, we were being housed or hosted by other families. So we spent about six months living in a, in the living room, uh, of another family, uh, in Aspen, another family later in Basalt, uh, that, uh, housed us, uh, until we could, you know, get our, you know, get our, you know, get ourselves our own place. And, and our parents um, can, you know, could, could have a could have a, a job that could provide for the family, uh, and that's I think the culture uh, that I grew up, where all of us and my family included, later on as we got established in the Rolling Fork Valley, we too uh, hosted other families uh, who came to the Rolling Fork Valley without knowing anyone, uh, and we hosted them in our mobile home park or we hosted them in our apartment. Many people came through our living room and they made our couch uh, their home for the time being. But that's, I think, the spirit 
uh, in the type of culture that I grew up in, the Roaring Fork Valley, uh, in this immigrant uh, community uh, uh, that's home now. And uh, I think, you know, we, uh, the mobile home park communities is where most of Latinas and Latinos live today. Uh, and that's really the only affordable housing uh, that was available for the working class. Uh, you know, if you, if you recall, then the mobile home parks were first the homes for the miners, actually, that because this is a, you know, has a history of, of being a mining community. Those are the sort of the first workers that sort of took, made the mobile home parks their, their home. And later on, other workers like Latinos who started to come in in large numbers because of the demand uh, for labor. Right? We, Aspen could not exist without a labor force uh, that could sustain all the growth uh, and all the wonderful things that Aspen is, or Vail, or Breckenridge, and all these other mountain resort communities. And so mobile home parks became the community. We lived in the Aspen Assault Mobile Home Park. We own mm-hmm. uh, mobile home uh, park uh, number um, A20, uh, which is at the entrance of that mobile home park. So there I still have family members uh, who live in that mobile home park. Uh, and then we also lived in Elgebel. Uh, after that mobile home park, we moved to an apartment in, in Elgeville, and those were the sort of the two uh, homes uh, that, that I knew uh, growing up um, as, as immigrant fans. I wanted to dive into some statistics because I think statistics and data tell a story, but not nearly as well as a person does. So thank you for sharing that, Alex. Um, you know, I, I'd like to bring kind of the, obviously by the title, we're bringing um, the federal policy, but those federal policies always impact um, local government and local communities. And so um, I, I thought sharing some statistics, one that, that you shared when we first talked, um, but also some, some follow-up research to help just paint the picture, if you will. And when we talked, uh, you told me that in 1990, which is um, when I graduated from Glenwood High School, um, about 8% of the Roaring Fork Valley's population was Latino. Uh, when I look at nationwide data, uh, the, the number I found was um, from the Pew Research Center that unauthorized immigrant population was approximately 3.5 million uh, back then. I want to compare it to present day, which is why I use that statistic. Um, and then is- interestingly, I saw that the population rose steadily nationwide from 1990 to 2007. And that's where it really peaked. And, and then it began the opposite trend, then steadily decreased until 2021. Go Jump forward to present day, you also shared when we first talked that 30 to 40 percent of the Roaring Fork Valley population, or you estimate that 30 to 40 percent of the Roaring Fork Valley population are immigrants, of which more than 75 percent are Latino, so by far the, the lion's share, and about 50 percent, you estimate... <clears throat> excuse me, of, of those immigrants are undocumented, or as the Pew Research Center says, unauthorized immigrants. Um, and many of them have been here for decades. And so nationwide, that number of unauthorized immigrant population is approximately 10.5 million. Um, so in, in, in total, the number has increased. Um, and then I'm going to share a little bit more. Um, uh, but anything, Alex, you want to share or add to those statistics? No, other than that's probably a conservative number, right? Um, I think, you know, what's always challenging is to be able to have an accurate census or count of, of our community because of the obvious, right? People are still living in fear. Moms and dads wake up every morning in Aspen through parachute uh, and they kiss their kids goodbye because they're going to work. 
to sustain the economic growth, the economic vitality of these valleys, and they don't know if they're going to be able to come back to see their own children because of the fear of deportation, because that's sort of the sad reality that we live in in the United States, where we've created a broken system that doesn't meet the needs of anyone, actually. It doesn't meet the needs of our values as a country, doesn't meet the value, doesn't meet the needs of our, our economic growth in the labor demands that we have. We have shortages in the millions in different industries and jobs, and it certainly does not meet uh, the human um, element of what families need to thrive in this country, yet we keep that system in place and we've kept it by design because it serves a lot of interest, cheap labor, um, you know, a lot of other sort of uh, uh, interest in this country. Um, I, I think what the numbers indicate to me, and maybe I didn't share all the statistics that lead to this conclusion, but it, it I suspect that our local immigrant population has increased faster than it has across the U.S., um, probably because there's, uh, you know, we're, we have lots of jobs here. Um, and in fact, again, according to Pew Research, the national trends um, in 2021, authorized immigrant into the U.S. actually decreased 14%, and lawful immigration increased by 29%, as has naturalized citizens by 49%. Um, and these increases seem to be spread across all different regions in the world. And as you and I talked about, Ox, as well, the New York Times estimates that um, roughly 200,000 immigrants will move from Latin America due to climate change. Where they move, who knows, but climate change will uh, essentially, sounds like, force their emigration. Um, a couple other, just uh, one more statistic that, according to Pew, 2.5 million uh, unauthorized immigrants crossed the southern border in 2023. Um, and so, again, my punchline for for this little bit of research is even if national, national trends decline, like the Pew Research Center says they are, local trends may not. And we may need, so we may need to address uh, immigration more comprehensively um, as, as, uh, as we're seeing in the town of Carbondale uh, in a better way. Um, and sooner rather than later. So, Yeah, and, and I think the only thing I'll add there to, to that, Dan, is that you're right. The immigration is not new. Immigration, um, Im immigrants moving into the Roaring Fork Valley has been consistent. Uh, it's been peaks and troughs depending on, you know, sort of the economic um, uh, situations around the world and in this country. But, you know, just, you know, like I said, like, you know, you've mentioned and I've also uh, stated in our earlier conversation since the 90s, you know, we've, you know, we've, we now represent a large portion of the Roaring Fork Valley. So we've always had Im immigrants come through, Latino immigrants specifically. It's just that, you know, for example, the case in Carbondale, we haven't sort of, um, we haven't been, we haven't been unhoused. And, and, and sort of went to the bridge in Carbondale where it's very visible. But immigrants in larger sizes than 150 people have migrated consistently uh, month after month, year after year, since we before the 90s, except my earlier point was that Latinos in this valley, we typically you know, had mobile home parks as an opportunity where you had some cheap, unsubsidized, uh, housing that um, you could rent 
And then typically you would have five to nine people live in a mobile home park. So each room would be its own family or people would be in the living room and every couch. And so that's been the model in the past. And public officials, uh, I believe, and we believe as an organization, have neglected the affordable housing uh, options for Latinos. Therefore, this is sort of the, the, the situation that we've created even for past generations of Latinos who migrated three, four months ago or two or three years ago. And now the Venezuelans who are in Carbondale, which I know we'll probably get to that, um, find themselves where there's no more mobile parks. They have no connection to the valley, so therefore they can't do the model that my parents or myself did where we sort of were hosted by someone else in their living room for six months or we crammed one mobile home park by putting five to ten humans in one, which is undignified housing. Um, and now you have sort of the, 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 the conditions that you see in Carbondale where you have 150 people that are unhoused. So that's homelessness. Um, and in the past, we were never treated as homeless people even though we were underhoused, but it's still living in undignified conditions, yet no government, no system recognized that that was still um, uh, a category of homelessness, of humans who still did not have all the things that they need to be able to thrive and no program, no support, uh, no transitional housing, and we're still living in mobile home parks today, up and down the valley from Parachute all the way to Aspen, and I can talk about other valleys here in the central mountain region as well the conditions remain the same about it the purpose of the show is to better understand both perspectives um and as i think about it and and you've given this topic so much more uh i mean it's so much more personal and you're so much more um uh, knowledgeable than i am but i just brainstormed and, and thought well let's let's think of what both sides, if you will, say about immigration. And so I'm going to rattle some off, chime in, or obviously feel free to add um, uh, what I'm missing. I think one of the, the leading, um, I guess I'll call it, anti-immigration comment is that immigrants don't pay their share of taxes but receive community benefits. Uh, it seems like the, the data shows otherwise, but um, have you heard that as well? I have, and the the research and independent uh, research and data um, uh, and analysts and, and think groups and the own U.S. government disagrees uh, with that position. In fact, there is evidence to suggest that immigrants, um, because they still work, right, so there's, you know, whether you believe the 11 million unauthorized workers in this country, or my number, which is probably more closer to 20 million, who are still working on a daily basis in this country, in every state, in most cities, in most towns, um, working in through payroll. So they're not under the table. If they're working at restaurants and hotels for ski for the ski industry, for many other in agriculture, they're being run through payroll. They pay payroll taxes. They go and purchase, and so part of payroll taxes includes Social Security. But there's a lot of research, and I think the Social Security number uh, is probably the most sort of telling, where you have a literally a fund within the Social Security Administration of the United States that is, you know, over, I think now it's $500 million um, that is there being collected and will go to nowhere, will go to no one, because obviously a lot of those names and a lot of those Social Security numbers do not match. Uh, and so you have this no-match fund 
um, that has been well um, reported by respected um, news outlets from the New York Times to the Wall Street Journal, et cetera, about how immigrants have contrib- contribute more than they take away. And just that sort of Social Security fund just is this one example. Because, you know, in most states, including Colorado up until very recently, um, undocumented immigrants or unauthorized workers could not tap government services, even though people claim they did. And people would make those, um, you know, those, you know, uh, un- unjustified uh, comments just because they have a bias. Um, but it's not like people qualify for different public services in most states, including Colorado up, up, up until recently, because we've changed some of the laws. Um, and so they weren't able to tap a lot of that value. And so they would contribute. They would play, pay sales taxes if they rented. Obviously, that income go or that income goes to the owners, which they are contributing uh, through real estate taxes and and other taxes. And of course, they when they're working, they're paying all of these types of taxes that they'll that they really don't get the full benefit like every other American who does who is able um, to to get some of that value from the taxes that we pay at the federal level or state level. And so, you know, that notion I think has been um, ha- has been corrected many times, it still does not, does not, you know, does not eliminate the fact that many elected officials in, in, in the Republican side, for example, or many folks who are anti-immigrant um, or racist hate groups, um, which are continuing to grow by the day um, in this country and including in the Western Slope, um, to continue to repeat those false statements. I might add a couple things as well that my own, I, unfortunately, I don't have statistics and data to back it up. But again, uh, what I would call reliable research indicates that if you're in the lower income bracket, regardless of your uh, immigration status or or ethnicity or what have you, uh, that you're probably paying in more to the system than you're taking out. Uh, and locally, um, many people, I, I realized when I was mayor, most people don't realize how dependent local government is on sales tax. And of course, except for nonprofits, um, uh, we're, all, we're all paying sales tax for the things we buy, which is going in to feed those communities. So again, that's uh, irrespective of immigration status. So I happen to agree with you on this one, um, uh, but I thought it was important to bring it up. Um, and I think Opposing that that sentiment, there are plenty in our community um, who believe that uh, our immigrants, uh, both financially and culturally, um, make us richer. Um, the other thing I noticed, and and I solicited some some questions from those that have been skeptical about the way the town is handling uh, the recent issue and other things. But what I see is is that some individuals get really upset with federal policy uh, and and perhaps the reason, the underlying reason why immigration occurs or why we have immigrants in our community or uh, unauthorized immigrants in our community, um, and they take it out on the individuals. Um, and and uh, I'm sure you've seen that, but any, any thoughts on that? No, I mean, I think I am as frustrated as, as, as many people. I mean, I don't know who specifically you spoke to, but I am frustrated with our federal government. And not just this government, right? Every administration. I mean, the United States has landed a person on the moon, and we have been able to solve as a country so many complex problems. So it begs the question, why is it um, that we have not been able to solve a system that serves 
no one and serves no no interest other than some economic interest. I mean, we have decided as a country, these are choices that we have made in action by our public officials at the federal level, president after president, administration after administration, Congress after Congress, dating back from the 1800s. We have made a choice not to solve the problem and not to address uh, the root causes of some of the, 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 the problems that force people to migrate um, or how to bring in people uh, into the country in an orderly fashion, in a humane way that honors our values, uh, and that's by choice. And so I am as frustrated as many people, certainly my community, the community that chooses to participate through Voces Unidas, uh, the various other organizations that are doing civil rights work around the country, around the state that we're a part of, uh, we're frustrated with the broken system that we have allowed. Republicans and Democrats have allowed the system to remain broken, and it begs, again, the question, what are the interests that a broken system serves, um, where you have people who are being, you know, who are being used for their labor, um, where their wages are lower than the rest of um, the workers, uh, where they face uh, inhumane working conditions in agriculture and many other industries, where they get abused, where they're victims of scams, where the the rationale and the rules we have put in place again have have are so uh, complex and counter um, you know counter uh, productive to a sort of legal system, if you will. That you know this is why you have we have created a system that has generated 20, 20 million unauthorized workers, for example, in this country. Those are the estimates that many of us in the civil rights immigrant rights movement are probably going to cite instead of the 11, which we believe it's a number that Congress has used in many reports. Many journalists cite that number, but we believe it's still very conservative. Um, and these are 20 million humans who have been here um, for decades, who have who are paying taxes, who are contributing, who are part of the fabric of every community in America, who, as you have said, make this country richer because of all of the uh, contributions that they make, um, yet they face all these other daunting challenges. We have made it so hard for them to thrive in this country, yet we want to take advantage of their labor. Um, and we, because it serves different economic purposes, uh, and it's just extremely challenging and frustrating for someone like me who have, who is a, who is an immigrant, who identifies as an immigrant, who's son of immigrants, who has an immigrant, uh, story, uh, and has dedicated my, most of my professional career uh, to civil rights and immigrant rights, uh, and yet we're still in 2024 now uh, with a broken Congress, with broken systems, um, and this has become the political football that politicians use year after year for their own purposes while taking advantage of uh, the, the, the individuals that are caught up in, a, in this broken system, in this toxic environment of hate uh, and nonsense. Yeah, I think you you alluded to this, but as I've thought about that as well, why why do we tolerate this broken system? And my only conclusion, and I don't mean to question other people's motives, um, but it's to keep wages suppressed, to increase profits. Um, when most, I think, businesses recognize we need the immig- immigration uh, in order to sustain ourselves, or at least to sustain our, our economy the, the way we've become accustomed um, a couple other things we don't need to discuss, but I just want to put it out there. As you mentioned, uh, there's some uh, 
there's some cultural uh, opposition. Uh, Some would even say that there's fear that uh, immigrants are going to replace white culture. There's the prioritization of, um, or, or there's this this unspoken prioritization of immigration enforcement over other law enforcement. Uh, and recently I heard um, actions by Governor Abbott down in, in, in Texas. This journalist referred to him as, or, 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 or the article referred to him as bloodthirsty. Uh, and I, I see that as well, that there's, there's this need to prioritize immigration um, enforcement over law enforcement. Uh, and I think what we see by that is the fear you mentioned in your opening story where um, many other unlawful activities that impact immigrants go unspoken because of fear of uh, being reported as an unauthorized immigrant, um, which my experience is that puts us all in danger. Um, so any any thoughts on those? Um, yeah, I mean, I, I think that's another, you know, sort of, um, misinformation that I oftentimes hear about immigrants being bad people. And I think that just the data doesn't support it. Research doesn't support it. Um, I mean, we immigration has always been you know, part of this country's history, so it's not because of lack of data or trends or research that's been done, you know, general, by cap, per capita. Uh, you see less crime in immigrant communities than you see in the general population or any other, or most of the subgroups. I think you see crime in every community, unfortunately, uh, just as we see in the dominant community or just as we see in the white community or just as we see in every other community. And, of course, all of us are working you know, hard to make sure that public safety, um, that all communities are feel safe, that we create the, the most safest communities for all of us. Um, but it's just not, not accurate to, to say that immigrants are committing more crime uh, than others. And what we do see, though, is, as, you have, as I have alluded and you have also said, you know, we, most immigrants are victims of, of crime because of the conditions that we have created that allow for, you know, bad actors to be engaged in, in shadow economies and underground, you know, sort of things. That's what happens when we create these systems. And oftentimes the victims of those crimes are actually the immigrants. Um, themselves who are taken advantage of who because they lack you know because we haven't created the infrastructure and the systems to make people thrive so you know they you know there's no one teaching them english there's no one helping them to integrate there's no support because of all these you know political uh philosophies and political actors that unfortunately get in office and and make laws um with a minority lens that you know obviously hurt um, the scapegoat in the most in many cases and in many states like Texas is the is immigrants, um, and they are the ones that are victimized, are the ones that are demonized, they're the ones that are made to be um, the reason why white people have problems, um, and and that causes lots of things. Unfortunately, it's not new. Unfortunately, this is just another wave. We have seen these waves in the history of this country. Um, raids against Latinos, the massive deportations against the Latino states and federal government, um, targeting uh, people of color. I mean, we've encamped Japanese Americans. We've, uh, I think we deported almost 3 million Mexicans um, in, the, in, in the early uh, 90s and um, because of fear. I mean, we've done some horrible things. Uh, we've created work permits like the Bracero program that stole millions and millions of dollars from poor 
um, agriculture workers that we brought from Mexico and we send them back without pay. I mean, we've done some horrific things in this country because of our ignorance. So, Alex, you mentioned the Venezuelans here in Carbondale, um, which has been a hot topic. Um, and I wanted to get your take, so I'll just ask an open-ended question. Um, how do you, how would you describe the situation that uh, currently exists with the Venezuelans here in Carbondale right now? Yeah, you know, I, I think this has been playing out uh, for several years now. I think Venezuelans moving out of their home country is not new. Uh, I think many, uh, most uh, Americans probably understand that that country has a specific model of government and that there's a lot of tension between our government and their government and the economic reality, the oppressive um, situation, um, the conditions have forced, are forcing people uh, to leave their country and migrate to other, uh, other parts of Latin America with the goal and idea of moving to the United States. Um, I think there are also federal programs um, and, 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 and different uh, policies that are approved. They're not new. Um, they date back to, I believe, 19, 1950, uh, when different, per, you know, when humanitarian parole uh, was made into a federal statute that allowed presidents and administrations to be able to look at different global issues and make determination and allow, um, you know, uh, individuals from various countries fleeing civil war, fleeing economic um, uh, uh, different conditions. Uh, through humanitarian, uh, for humanitarian reasons, and so the Venezuelans have a, you know, have been have been part of that now for a, for a couple of years. Certainly during the Biden administration, uh, they qualify uh, for what's called temporary protected status, which allows them, if they reach the border, uh, to be able to get, um, you know, allowed into the country. And to one, once in the country after five months, uh, they can then apply for a uh, worker permit through TPA. They, they need to apply for the temporary protected status. If they, once they qualify, they can ask for a worker permit um, and they'll be able to work legally in, in the country. And so obviously you see, you know, by the thousands of Venezuelans coming into the country, cities like New York, Chicago, others have been, you know, have been overwhelmed by the number of people. Uh, you also start to see governors of, you know, states that happen to, you know, take on racist policies and approaches like Texas and Florida, where they're starting to bust people from um, from some of their borders, or in Florida's case, um, they sort of go to Texas, I guess, uh, and, 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 gra and kidnap people. It's also called kidnapping when people are taken against their will um, and then moved into another state uh, where maybe the supports and the structures are not in place. Uh, when they make it to Denver, obviously a group of, of Venezuelans, um, just like my parents or when my parents moved, where a friend said, hey, there's jobs and they're looking for workers and you can and you can make a decent living over there. That's probably the same thing that happened in this case where someone came to the mountains, whether it was Summit County, Eagle County, or all the way to our valley, but someone told them that there's jobs in all these communities and eventually people, um, you know, with desperation, people are hungry, people have no jobs. People have been on the road for a year, if not three months, um, some of them victims of rape and victims of, of crimes from governments and cartels, um, most of that funded by the United States and all of these sort of countries of you know, border security 
in Guatemala and Mexico and uh, all these other um, borders, and they've made it all the way over here. And so uh, Bolsas Unidas, um, you know, we are obviously part of the immigrant community in Nova Valley. We are ourselves self-identify as immigrants. So we are part of the informal channels of communication. So we hear. I get calls all the time or, you know, we hear informally through the grapevine about what's happening in different pockets. And we started to hear that in Carbondale, the police were having some interactions with some Latinos under the bridge. And then we started to see some other chatter on social media and, or on WhatsApp that sort of, you know, asked us to say, gosh, what is this is happening in our valley? Why haven't we heard and why isn't it public and why aren't we seeing all of these, you know, ecosystems, the nonprofit, public, you know, Department of Human Services, different towns and counties uh, mobilize others so that uh, we can certainly help um, in one way or another. And so um, we eventually went to the bridge to see for ourselves and we, yeah, we found uh, roughly about 80 uh, Latinos who were unhoused who were living under the bridge and who was true. Um, while they had been in the valley for some of them for two months and shopping and all these stores, going to see market, going to the gas station, um, being in front of uh, different businesses, asking for day, day, day jobs. Um, no, you know, very few, um, uh, very few people had sort of approached them to support them. And the weather was shifting and obviously it's winter and it's Colorado and people die when you're exposed to the elements. And so uh, we wanted to make sure that, you know, Carbondale, the town, knew about this, that the state knew about this, that the ecosystem, the nonprofit, county governments all knew that this was a reality and that, you know, what's our responsibility as government? What's our responsibility as community members? What's our responsibility as humans uh, when you have such large group that included children and women um, exposed and potentially in danger, what's our response? And so um, I just want to take this opportunity, and if I can, if I, if, I, if I may, to just thank the Carbondale community in the Roaring Fork Valley uh, for the overwhelming support. Uh, you know, more than 150 people, um, you know, gave, um, you know, gave a donation to Walter Sumida as we were uh, trying to create a response. Uh, over 300 volunteers have stepped in, whether that's just a, just everyday person who's reading a story and saying, I want to go and cook a meal. I want to join my church group and I want to, we want to go and, 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 and staff a, a clothing drive so that people have jackets or I'm going to take whatever, you know, old jackets or new jackets that I have and to be able to help them. It's just been extremely um, um, just gratifying to see uh, how a community could come together uh, to be able to help other humans who are obviously in, in desperate need of, of help because of the condition that they find themselves in. I appreciate you saying that. Um, so thank you. And, and I concur with that. Um, I, I think f- for the sake of time, I, I wanted to talk about what Carbondale was doing and compared it to other communities. But I think for the sake of time, we, we may skip that. And I encourage you to uh, listeners to go to the Soper Sun or other places to, to learn what the, how the community has stepped up, as Alex mentioned. Um, but also, Alex, you and Vosus Unidas, um, I, I believe, helped facilitate a legal workshop several months ago, um, basically helping to inform the immigrants, uh, their situation, their rights. Um, and 
someone expressed during that um, or, or afterwards with a reporter that they acknowledged that this seemed this seemed a little unfair that the town has brought so many resources to um, the new immigrants, um, but but nothing or not nearly as much to the immigrants that have been here for a while. And I think that kind of speaks to the ru- where the rubber meets the wor- the road, um, alluding to my my title. But um, speak to that, like why why is it? Why was it your priority to focus on these Venezuelans, um, or or why do you think it was the town's community to focus on this on the Venezuelans when there are other immigration issues as well, being un, or needs that are unmet? Yeah, it's a, it's a great great point. And and just by the way, Voces Unidas works on works with all uh, immigrants in the community, and every single day, uh, our staff wake up and go to work and are fighting for. Um, to change federal systems, to change federal laws, to work on all the various problems that exist. But you're right that even today in Carbondale, uh, there are volunteers from the Latino community who are there at one of the shelters, or actually we have, probably still have one, um, and are working and donating or feeding uh, the Venezuelans while they themselves are long-term um, uh, immigrants who have no path uh, to any type of status, who have been in our community for 10, 20 years and cannot work um, work legally, for example. Uh, they are part of that 20 million or 11 million in, in, uh, based on the federal um, record. Uh, but they yet um, recognize that as humans, uh, you know, they, the Venezuelans find themselves in conditions that are unsafe, right? They will die if we let them, if we as a society, if we as a community let them be under the bridge uh, and exposed to the to the elements. And so you have um, hundreds of people um, in the Latino community who, independent of their own story and their own journey, and it's true, they were never received this way. Like I said before, like my family, we were housed by another family. We, sleep, we slept on the living room in a mobile home park for six months. Because that was sort of the model. When you came in, you found a friend and they hosted you. Or you rented a mobile home park and five to ten people were there. Uh, we didn't have legal clinics. We didn't have, you know, the you know shelters um, because these are different sort of conditions. Yet those individuals are the ones, some of them that are there volunteering, donating, trying to get people uh, the support they can in their own way. Uh, but that is the reality, and I think we see it in our data. When, you know, Bolsa Sonidas does uh, polling of Latinos across the state of Colorado, and we see that there's a frustration. Not a frustration against the Venezuelans, a frustration at the federal government, at the inaction of our policymakers, that we have not yet fixed um, a broken system where 20 million people potentially could use worker permits. Tomorrow, they could, you, we could change their lives with the stroke of a pen, if any president, Republican or Democrat, chooses to parole people through humanitarian reasons um, so they can contribute in more meaningful ways to the community without the fear of being deported. I think that's the frustration that we're seeing in the Latino community um, because of the inequities and the injustices and the politics of the day. It shifts so drastically from one president to another, from one Congress to another, and it gets worse. Unfortunately, this is just a cycle. We've seen these cycles and these waves, um, you know, in the history of this country. We're just here in this time and place. 
whether we go back or, or whether it gets worse before it gets better. Um, but certainly, Bolsonaro is working extremely hard every single day. We just had a 5,000-person march in Washington, D.C. on November 13th of last year, uh, where we marched in D.C. Uh, to the White House to demand that President Biden and this administration um, at, use their uh, federal statute to parole 11 or 20 million people so that they have an opportunity to work legally to get um, the same temporary protected status that the Venezuelans have. And the, for the families who have been here for 30 years, 20 years, 10 years, we took people from Eagle County, from Summit County, from uh, Lake County, from Picking County, from Garfield County, uh, to Washington, D.C., and we joined um, you know, others from around the country to demand uh, 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 you know, a fix to some of these broken systems that are unfair. What I'm hearing you say in, in your response, and as I thought about it, is there's well, well, one doing my own research, and how how can you immigrate into the community, into the, this country, and what are the different paths? There are many different paths, and what I'm hearing you say in so many words is some people weren't as lucky to have the TPS status that gives them temporary legal status in the United States. Um, so most, if not all, the Venezuelans that are here now uh, have that protection, therefore are here legal, legally, albeit temporarily. And that the difference is really um, how we approach maybe crisis support, like we would if there was a wildfire. As you said, there are people uh, living under the bridge uh, that could die versus ongoing uh human services for the immigrant community. Uh, so there is a difference there. Um, and I, I don't hear you saying that, obviously you're not saying that there shouldn't be the crisis support, but it should be more balanced with the, the ongoing human services for those that have been here and con contributed to the community for decades. Is that a fair summer summarization? I mean, I, I mean, I, I think that um, that for the Venezuelans, it's less about their immigration status. I know people focus on the migrant sort of element. What we have there is a is, is a is a human crisis, right? That should be treated like a flood, like a fire, like an emergency, and it's a it's a human services um, uh, crisis. And so, what we needed there is governments and communities um, to to join. Uh, together to do a response because we're either going to have 80 bodies of people deceased under a bridge because of the element, or we're going to help 80 humans, you know, um, thrive in our community. And yes, uh, there's a portion of that that's immigration, but that's, uh, you know, what we're dealing with at the beginning of a crisis like this is basic human need, shelter, right? People cannot, they need shelter, otherwise they die. They need food. Because without food, people die. They need access to water. They need access to bathrooms. They need basic things that any homeless person would need. So I think the first approach for us was you have a homeless, homelessness problem, an unhoused human problem, and how, do we, how would we react if you found 80 Caucasian homeless people uh, in a crisis under a bridge at that size and scale? What would we do? And then we deal with the other elements, right? In, in traditional homelessness, you deal with substance abuse and mental health and other, other, other things. In this case, we have to deal with immigration um, needs and also trauma and other uh, pieces, right? And then the transi but transitional housing and housing 
at the end of the day is the major factor um, that is putting people in danger because they don't have such. I have tried to work towards community integration, specifically with the Latino community, because as you point out, they're the, the dominant um, um, minority, if you will, although I'm not sure they, they're the minority anymore. Um, and I, I think I've clearly failed more than I've succeeded in those attempts. Um, but my question to you is, what's the goal? So not like clearly the federal, th there's, I don't think there's anybody who would say that the federal policies um, don't need drastically overhauled. But from a local level, what's the goal? You know, it doesn't have to be that complex. Um, I think like all people, um, I think it's human nature that you want to feel like you belong. You want to feel like your voice matters. Uh, in a democracy, it means that we have to learn how to share power. It means that uh, others' opinions and others' views and perspectives, which may be different uh, than uh, what has, what, you know, the, the perceptions or opinions that have been at the table, um, are, um, and I think a lot of discomfort uh, sometimes happens because of that. But to be able to integrate fully a community, you know, we have to see, um, you know, chiefs of police and mayors and city council members and county commissioners and state representatives um, look like the diversity within the entire community. And I, I think we have to start working uh, as a community to ensure that um, the agency and the power that is innate with every human uh, is able to exercise that voice and that agency. And that means that we're going to have to see changes. I think what doesn't work is when we try to assimilate people. And when we try to, when the dominant communities, with even with the greatest of intention, with the greatest of passion and with the greatest of intention, try to assimilate people into, into their way of thinking, into their perspective, and their control of power is, um, it will remain the same, yet we want somehow other humans to come in to the mix, yet not have a share of that power, not have access to the decision-making table. And I think that's why Bolsas Unidas was created. Um, from the beginning, we chose not to go into the service delivery model. What we've seen in all communities, like large urban settings um, or large towns, is that you have to have community-based organizations that are led by, created by, um, the very people who are going to be served by, those, by, the, by that mission of that organization. And we have to start working on how do we have conversations about the new perspectives and all of the perspectives and how they intertwine and the intersectionality of our common interests as humans and people. And I think when we work together to make sure that all of us um, see ourselves belonging, included in our voice, in our perspectives and our vision collectively um, are merging and become one, then that's when we know uh, that we have arrived. Obviously, it's a long journey. It takes a lot of effort and work. Um, and I think the Roaring Fork Valley is a perfect place where we still need a lot of work to do, um, but it's a perfect place to be able to begin um, to model more of this work that has been already done in many other communities, um, yet we are still a little behind um, in, in, in where we live today. And when we talked before, you talked about part of that work is bringing 
local leaders to Mexico City every year. And uh, knowing that we still just have a couple minutes, can you describe what, what you do and why you do that? We, we do a lot of leadership programs um, to expose rural Latinas and Latinos from the Roaring Fork Valley and other rural parts uh, an opportunity to see themselves in a position where they're leading, where they're advocating, and where they're also connecting with other like, like leaders who are in the journey uh, with them so they don't feel like they're alone. Uh, we take leaders to Washington, D.C. three times a year. We take 400 rural Latinas and Latinos to Denver every March. And we've introduced an international program. And that, that leadership program is also has a lot of elements of, my, of immigration. And we speak about the patterns and history of migration, why humans migrate in general. And we talk about both historic and current politics and policies that are impacting and are prohibiting people uh, from thriving and the realities that we see, the good, the bad, and the ugly. And I think it gives our rural Latinos uh, an opportunity uh, to use their own lived experiences and their own journey uh, to help policymakers better understand and better create these binational uh, agreements and policies that clearly have a direct impact uh, and indirect impact to all of us, right? Many of us have still family members who are in the journey, who are still trying to cross um, the border, or many families who have gone back to Mexico and come back because now they have legal status. Um, I think immigration for many of us who are connected to countries like Mexico and Salvador, um, it, it, it's, a, you know, it's an interconnected um, reality. And so we as Latinos who happen to have dual citizenship or have that dual bicultural, binational perspective can be critical in helping to find solutions that are long-lasting, that are sustainable, and that hopefully they're more humane and based on the lived experience of people who have actually crossed the border, who have actually gone through the legal process, who have actually encountered the oppressive system and broken system that we have today, and many people who have been victims of crime in the process. What inspires you to do the work you're doing through Voces Unidas? Uh, you know, I think the resiliency of people, um, I, you know, I, I, whether it's the whether it's the established Latinas and Latinos, the families who came in the 80s and 90s, um, many of them who still have no status, who still um, have no path to citizenship, who every day wake up, kiss their kids goodbye and not knowing whether they're going to be able to come back and see them again or the many established families who already are um, U.S. citizens or their kids are, are thriving and are U.S. citizens, or the new arrivals um, who, despite all of their challenges and who, their journey to Carbondale, um, just the resiliency that humans have um, to be able to uh, wake up every day, want to do good in their new community, want to contribute as much as possible, and also want to help others. I think that's one uh, of, 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 of the things that keeps me hopeful um, and wanting to continue to uh, work every single day uh, to improve some of these conditions that are keeping people from thriving. Um, and, I, and I think, you know, in the Roaring Fork Valley, well, you know, from Parachute Aspen, well, there are still people um, and groups who obviously 
would rather me be deported or me go back to the country where I'm from. I get told that all the time and my staff, unfortunately, all the time. Um, I think there's more people uh, who are decent, who are an ally, who understand that together we are stronger, that culture and diversity makes us stronger as a region, um, that we can solve many of the problems and challenges that we're facing if we work closer together. Uh, you know, elected officials who understand um, that it's important to integrate people and to have people feel more connected to their own government, to their own communities, to their own society, because that's what's going to get us through the challenges ahead in the future. I think that is also inspiring, especially in communities like the Roaring Fork Valley, um, which is similar in many other pockets of the Central Mountain, like Summit County, Eagle County, and others. Um, but I think just that human a human spirit of resiliency and, and wanting to, to do good and wanting to help um, and, and find a common, a common mission and a common vision for all of us, where all of us feel included. I think that is the, what keeps me uh, working every single day. Thank you, Alex. Thanks for joining me today. It was an honor. Today's show was Immigration Policy versus Reality. Where does the rubber meet the road? I'm Dan Richardson. Thank you for listening to Katie and Kate. 